0: Um, I was joking with Melanie Colnett this morning uh, that uh, Grandview's never actually asked me to preach before, and we've been attending here for 13 years, and as I was writing my sermon this week, I realized why that is. Uh, (laughs) No one has ever been worried about what I would say from the pulpit. They were terrified of how many words I would use in order to say it. Uh, Let's say I deleted more words this week than you can possibly imagine. Um, No one has ever said that I'm pithy or... uh, You know, why use 10 words when you can use 4,283? I wasn't here two weeks ago when Amy kicked off this summer series, but I'm delighted to be a part of it this week. For those of you who might have missed two weeks ago as well, uh, we are exploring some of the songs that we sing here at Grandview that have been written by Grandview members over the years and that are drawn directly from biblical texts. In creating this series, uh, Reverend Jake Tucker, father of two. Congratulations. Every time we mention his name, he walks through that door. It's incredible. Uh, He created a document that actually borrows language from the B.C. School's curriculum to help provide some context for those of us who are preparing messages. And as a B.C. School teacher, I actually found this incredibly helpful. He framed this series in the idea of sort of what are the big ideas that we're trying to get across? What are the practices that we can participate in? And then what's the content that we're diving into? right? And you're going to notice that I'm a teacher this morning because it's going to feel a little bit like that. So uh, if I was with my students this morning, I would share those big ideas right off the bat. Well, we've got two. And those two ideas are, the first is this, worship shapes our communal identity and vocation. To put that another way, when we give thanks and praise to God, it changes who we are and what we do. The other big idea is that the songs that we sing are rooted in scripture, and they help us listen to the voice of the Holy Spirit. And I don't know about you, but for me, over 13 years, the songs that we sing at Grandview have been a direct pipeline to the voice of God into my ears and heart. Um, And that has been a great gift to me. This big idea resonates deeply. We've chosen three really simple practices for this season, and I love all of them. One is singing together, it's pretty much my favorite thing to do with God's people. One is reflecting on God's word and story, and we're going to do that this morning. And then finally is praying. And I hope that we have an opportunity to do all three of those in the next, I'd like to say 20 minutes, but it's me, so it'll, it'll probably be 30. <laughs> and then uh, the content this morning is going to come from, from James 3, as verses 17 and 18, which also happened to be uh, the verses that I took for my song, God's Wisdom. And you'll notice that we didn't actually have a scripture reading this morning. This morning for a scripture reading, we're going to stand and sing uh, God's word together. So if you wouldn't mind, uh, would you stand and sing with me? And Ellie, you're going to need to actually change the slides for this one as well. Do you still have the clicker? Can you you change the slides as we get to those places? Is my...
1: God's wisdom is pure. God's wisdom brings peace. God's wisdom is gentle and true. Full of mercy and love. Impartial, sincere. God's wisdom. Righteousness is sown in peace For those who make peace God's wisdom is pure God's wisdom brings peace God's wisdom is gentle
0: This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. My style of sermon this morning won't be an expository message on the text that we've just sung. Uh, I hope that you will permit me to present a narrative memoir of sorts, my relationship of grappling with and meditating on this text and indeed the entire book of James for the last 25 years. Uh, in the close to the summer with my class, I find that telling stories is a good way of keeping them tapped in, so I'm going to do some storytelling this morning. I don't know about you, but throughout my life, I've had different portions of Scripture that have been my favorites. As a child, my favorite parts were the exciting parts. Uh, we're talking about David and Goliath, Joshua and the Battle of Jericho, Joseph and his Colorful coat and terrible brothers. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego's survival from the fire, or when you're a pastor's kid, every night it would be Shadrach, Meshach, and to bed we go. Just so bad. <laughs> Daniel's miraculous night with the lions, and Esther's undercover Jewish identity, bizarre marriage, and eventual salvation of her people. I had no idea as a child what a harem was, um, but I loved the story of Esther. Uh, anyways, we had this book with a cassette and it would beep when you had to turn the pages. Great artwork. I loved it. I don't think we talk about it enough anymore, but the Bible is exciting. I loved stories of God doing extraordinary things through ordinary people. As a teenager, however, my biblical tastes changed. I probably thought it wasn't cool to like Bible stories anymore. And for a number of years, my favorite book of the Bible was unequivocally the book of James. As a little reminder for those of us who need a refresher or who might be unfamiliar with the book, James is a letter whose author is unknown to us beyond his name. Uh, The letter is believed by many to be written by James, the brother of Jesus, but to be honest, we don't know. He simply tells us that he is James, a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ. Um, And unlike many of the New Testament letters, it isn't written to a specific people. It's not written to the church in Ephesus or Thessalonica. It's, It's written to the Jewish diaspora spread well beyond to Jerusalem. So we see in the text, he says, to the 12 tribes scattered among the nations. This is a Jewish Christian text written by a Jewish Christian to Jewish Christians who are living in the non-Jewish, non-Christian world. Okay? That helps us frame some of these things a little bit. James is a really short book. It's five chapters. You can easily read it in a single setting. And when you do, you realize that it, it doesn't quite fit. It feels a little out of place with the other letters in the New Testament. Uh, it isn't a great theological treatise on the power of Jesus and his resurrection. It's not a specific targeted letter, sort of admonishing specific churches about the unique challenges that they're having in that place. In fact, it almost feels like James's letter might be more at home with some of the Old Testament wisdom literature, like Proverbs, than it would be uh, in the New Testament, sort of smack between Hebrews and 1 Peter. James's letter is a collection of wisdom. The writer provides a series of short little admin, uh, admonishments, almost moral instructions for how to cope with the challenges of faith and how to live out our faith in the world. Now, ironically, uh, when I was a teenager, James was my favorite, but my least favorite kind of text was wisdom literature. Um, I'm almost ashamed to admit how much I disliked the book of Proverbs. Uh, I actually like, would look through Proverbs for Proverbs that were ridiculous and untrue so that I could sort of like, be like, this is... This is ridiculous. Let me give you some examples. <laughs> I told you, they, were, they should have been worried. I mean, the, 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 this could go on for days. Laurie, I told them just to get comfortable and, you know. The Lord does not let the righteous go hungry, but he thwarts the craving of the wicked. This simply felt ridiculous to me. Surely there are good, righteous men and women all over the world who are starving, in fact, dying of starvation right now. And maybe even more surely, the wicked seem to get what they want constantly. Lazy hands make for poverty, but diligent hands bring wealth. It doesn't take years of study to discover that many of the world's hardest workers, those with the most diligent hands, are some of the most poorly treated, lowest paid workers on the planet. The fear of the Lord adds length to life but the years of the wicked are cut short. I wondered as a teenager what God's promises for long life meant for my grandma Vinnie. My dad's mom, who died when he was just 13 with a 17-year-old brother at home, or for my oldest brother Titus, who died minutes after being born before either of my parents had a chance to meet him. Does this wise saying simply imply that my grandma and brother were wicked? I couldn't tell. Solomon's wisdom to me seemed pretty convenient for someone who happened to be a king, who ruled his country for 40 years, who didn't know poverty, and who could actually cut short the lives of the wicked by just sending his army to them. Thanks, Solomon. I've come to appreciate the Proverbs a lot more since then, so please take my tongue in cheek lightly. I remember someone at Grandview once telling me that Proverbs is wisdom for when life is going well. When life sucks, you occasionally have to look elsewhere. So why did I like James so much? What was different about this New Testament wisdom text that these Old Testament wisdom texts didn't quite get? Well, the truth is, James seemed to me like wisdom for people who are sad. And in high school, I was as emo as they come. I loved to feel emotions when I was a teenager, and my favorite emotion by far was sadness. You could often find me sitting in my room, listening to emo music, burning incense, reading Russian novels, doing battle with the demons in my head. For some teenagers, these demons are metaphysical. For me, they were very physical. I suffered from chronic pain from the age of 12 to 21 and I really liked when my mood matched my physical reality. Pain with pain. I learned to play acoustic guitar with Radiohead, Dashboard Confessional, Jimmy Eat World, The Weaker Thans, and Death Cab for Cutie.
1: The Atlantic was born today And I'll tell you how
0: what this song means. You are a smarter and a better person than I am. (laughs) I promise, it's gonna land. But to a 17-year-old Charlie Bueller, this song wasn't about something. This was about Ben Gibbard, lead singer of Death Cab for Cutie, reaching into my soul and transforming my emotions into sound. And now I wanted scripture that could do that. Believe it or not, that's what James did for me. I remember as a 16-year-old opening up the book of James at Island Lake Camp in Paulsbo, Washington, where I was spending the summer as a camp counselor and reading the opening lines. Consider it pure joy, my brothers and sisters, whenever you face trials of many kinds, because you know that the testing of your faith produces perseverance. Let perseverance finish its work so that you may be mature and complete, not lacking anything. It's hard to express how that text jumped off the page to me. It wasn't a trite little saying, be good so that good things happen to you. James was writing to people who were in the thick of it, Christians who were being persecuted for their faith. My 16-year-old brain read it like this. Choose joy when life sucks. Because you're being shaped into someone who looks like Jesus Christ. I was just starting to realize at that time how different happiness and joy were. You know, happiness was a result of what happened to you. It's quite literally happenstance. Good things happen and then you're happy. And then they stop happening and then you're not happy anymore. The absence of pain can cause happiness. Joy, on the other hand, sustains us through pain. It isn't the absence of suffering, but the food which nourishes us through suffering. And since every 16-year-old thinks they're facing all of the world's trials all at once, uh, this was incredibly good news. Remember, I was emo. (laughs) Suddenly, I could choose joy and be sad at the same time. James felt comforting, reassuring even, because he didn't pretend that following Jesus would immediately improve my life. The Apostle James and Ben Gibbard were reaching into my soul and letting me know that all of my emotions, even the sad ones, were okay. So I kept reading. Over the next five chapters, James provides instructions on enduring persecution, treatment of the poor, controlling one's tongue, caring for orphans and widows, the nature of wisdom, cursing, boasting, making oaths, and prayer. James is like the social gospel epistle. What good is it, my brothers and sisters, if someone claims to have faith but has no deeds? Can such faith save them? Suppose a neighbor is without clothes and daily food. If one of you says to them, go in peace, keep warm and well-fed, but does nothing about their physical needs, what good is it? In the same way, faith by itself, if it is not accompanied by action, is dead. okay. Thanks, James. Uh, Show me your faith without deeds, and I will show you my faith by my deeds. I loved that. I would like, you know, that's what I would like think about Christians who I didn't think were doing enough good things, you know? Listen, my dear brothers and sisters, has not God chosen those who who are poor in the eyes of the world to be rich in faith and to inherit the kingdom he promised to those who love him? This almost sounded like the opposite of Proverbs to me. Speak and act as those who are going to be judged by the law that gives freedom, because judgment without mercy will be shown to anyone who has not been merciful. Mercy triumphs over judgment. I clung to these verses again and again and again. For a teenager who had primarily viewed faith as personal piety, an individual relationship with God, uh, maybe even like a better term would be an individual transaction with God, jamess simple call to action actually seemed pretty radical. I knew my faith saved me, and like so many of us who grew up in the church, I was more concerned with what or maybe where my faith saved me from than anything else. Hell was real, eternal torment was on the line, faith provided an escape route. I believe, tap. Jesus saves, beep. Transaction complete. Now, all of a sudden, James didn't show me what I was being saved from, but instead, he reached into my soul and showed me what I wanted to be saved into faith being transformed into action. And lucky for me, I discovered what so many Christians had not. This call to action wasn't just for me to live out my faith. It was also a pretty good excuse to judge all those other Christians whose Sunday morning faith showed no fruit in their day-to-day lives.
1: Oh, we labor unto glory Till heaven and earth are one Oh, we labor unto glory until God's kingdom comes. Until God's kingdom
0: comes. For the next 20 years of my life, many of my decisions were weighed in light of this admonition from James. If my bracelet in the 90s read WWJD, my bracelet in the 2000s could have read H-I-M-F-B-T-I-A. How is my faith being transformed into action? I was really into James, y'all. I was, I was like, this was, this was what I was going to put on there, you know? It doesn't have quite the same ring to it. <laughs> In our early marriage, let me give you some examples. Becky and I were part of a church planting team in Calgary. I remember having so many conversations about what kind of coffee we were going to serve after the service, how much money we could afford for lighting and sound equipment, what kind of aesthetic we wanted to create. I kept asking, what's the best way we can love this community, whether or not they walk through our doors? No one ever had an answer. As we moved to Spain for Becky's intercultural ministry internship, we signed up to do anything that was asked of us. We fundraised, taught adult English classes, youth English classes, ran kids groups, youth groups, preached sermons on the fly in Spanish without a translator. Not a good idea. Coached basketball teams, offered our house and beds to over 56 visitors during a nine-month period, built websites, made videos, and helped plan a summer camp for over 200 kids. I had fully committed to the idea that if my faith wasn't active all the time, it was dead and I might as well be as well. From Spain, we moved back to Vancouver. I eventually completed my education degree and began working in low-income inner-city schools in Surrey. And I signed up to love kids in as many ways as I could. Volleyball, basketball, ultimate frisbee, track and field, D&D clubs, robotics clubs, chess clubs, camping trips, field trips to every place in the Lower Mainland, you name it, Mr. Bueller to the rescue. (laughs) We also began looking for a church. Although we were weary and exhausted, after our year of nearly constant labor in Spain, we sought to find a church which was active in its community, living out their faith in real, transformational, radically welcoming action. Grandview was the first church we attended, and we have actually been here ever since. It's like the exact opposite of church shopping. We went to one, and we never left. In our first coffee with Tim Dickow, we learned about the ways in which we could get involved at Grandview. We learned about Kinbrace, just Work, Salisbury, Cohere, Community Houses, Out of the Cold, Home Groups, Eastside Story Guild, in addition to many of the traditional programs that churches operate, like Sunday School and Godly Play, Youth Group, Music, Healing Prayer, taze and other prayer opportunities at Still Point. This was clearly a church that had read the book of James. We were staying, Okay. Uh, and as, uh, and for a closet emo kid, who was just masking a rating in a 30-year-old preppy body, uh, <laughs> I was delighted to discover that Grandview also specialized in agonizing lament. It was like Ben Gibbard was still reaching out to my weary heart, albeit through Tom Wiest, and their music combined said, it's okay to be sad here. We're all sad here. <laughs> Nearly all the time. <laughs> Lent for 10 months straight. And then we do Advent and Christmas, and we go back to Lent. And let me just say that for 13 years, we have received God's richest blessing to be a part of the church at work. Faith in action. This is always where I started crying while I was um, practicing at home, too. And for 13 years, we have watched as our church has been laid bare Worn down, burnt out, and often completely unable to cope with the weight of constantly living out our faith in never ending action. We have lost friends and family and pastors, and we have said goodbye to so many people. And sometimes we haven't even been able to say goodbye, some just disappeared into the night. Our yoke has not been easy, and our burden has not been light. And so here this morning, wow, I really went over if the kids are already coming back up. <laughs> I, got, I got one full page to go. It's okay, kids. This is good for you, too. So here this morning, in this place that we find ourselves in, we finally come to today's text. But the wisdom that comes from above is first holy, then peaceful, gentle, and compliant, filled with mercy and love, impartial, sincere. And the fruit of righteousness is sown in peace by those who make peace. And if you're anything like me, you might hear this kind of like you hear chapter 2 of James. A call to action. Okay, if I want to be wise, I have to be more holy, more peaceful, more gentle, more merciful, and more loving. Check, 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 check. I just have to do more. That will make me wise. But siblings in Christ, I don't believe for a second that that is good news. I don't believe that if our response to scripture is simply to work harder, that we have fully heard the gospel in it. In fact, I think I've been neglecting the good news in James for over 20 years. If we have somehow convinced ourselves that it is only through our constant hard work that we attain God's love, then God is not who he says he is. You see, at just the right time, when we were still powerless, Christ died for the ungodly. God demonstrates his own love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. God's love, brothers and sisters, is given freely because we are precious to the one who created us, who died for us, and who sustains us. It is not given because of our hard work. You cannot work your way into God's love In fact, that is a pathway to destruction. And if we have somehow convinced ourselves that it's only through our constant hard work that God's redeeming work in the world is accomplished, then I'm sorry, but that means that we are claiming that the living, moving, active Holy Spirit of the living God is not nearly as big and strong as we need God to be. So then how do we read our passage today? How do we hear the gospel, the good news this morning? Let me offer one possible answer. Instead of asking, what do we do with the text? Let us instead ask, who do we find in the text? When we read portions of scripture that tell us about God, particularly about God's character traits, I find it helpful to replace the trait in question with the person of Jesus. Jesus is the full embodied revelation of God, incarnate and imminent, The wisdom of God is found most completely in Jesus Christ. And not simply the life and good works of Jesus, but also especially in his death. God from God, light from light, through whom all things were made, hanging on a Roman cross. The reality is that God's wisdom seems at first like folly as we gaze at him in submission and death. Listen to the words of James 3 one more time. But Jesus Christ, Son of Mary, yet also Son of God, hanging on the cross for the redemption of the entire world, is first holy, then peaceful, gentle, compliant, filled with mercy and love, impartial, sincere. And the fruit of his righteousness is sown in peace by him who is our peace. So what difference does that make? Well, to the 16-year-old me that never really went away, I I need constantly, daily, to be reminded that the work we do, the faith and action that James calls Jesus' disciples to do, is not a requirement for God to love us, nor is it necessary for the Holy Spirit to transform the world. God is at work with us or without us. It is, however, an invitation to feast on the one who already loves us with an unfathomable love and who is already at work to bring shalom to the world. God invites us into God's labor. But listen to this. This is the good news, but not without the rest and nourishment of the one who never wearies. I have neglected that nourishment for so much of my life, and it has run me ragged. And church It has run us ragged. We see in the Old Testament God's intended patterns for rest, that common weekly Sabbath, but also those seasons of fallowness that come every seven years, enabling regrowth and rejuvenation. At Grandview, we have worked and worked and worked. We have tarried for decades. And it can seem like the soil has little to no nourishment left to feed, the seeds of peace that we are trying to plant. My temptation, as it has always been, is to keep working. I think instead I'm being invited to rest. That doesn't mean I do nothing. It means that I, that we, continue to shed the labor we cannot carry on our own. We cling to the simplest of habits that allow us to feed on the abundance of Christ's bounty. In this season of fallowness, as long as it lasts, we simply dwell in our most basic practices— We sing songs of hope together. We reflect on God's word and we tell God's story. We pray and we eat and drink from the table of the Good Shepherd, whose yoke is always easy and whose burden is always light. We let the soil of our hearts and our church heal as we wait for seeds of peace to grow again, not from our own labor, but from Christ who died, Christ who rose again, And Christ, who is making all things new. Amen.